For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God's plan. God's plan. It's a lot of bad things that they wish and 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 on me. God's plan. I'm not saying that Jeremiah was the impetus for Drake's song, God's Plan, but it could have been. It could have been. How many of you guys have heard that verse of the Bible before? Raise your hands. Yes, that's most of us. Now, I figure there's probably uh, some folks that have maybe never heard that before, uh, but I, I did it. Well, I didn't do some research. MatthewKelly.com did some research and found that Jeremiah 29:11 is actually the second most quoted verse in the Bible, only behind John 3:16. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you guys, and I need you to be honest, have a four, I know the plans I have for you, journal? <laughs> Come on. Uh, some of you have, the, you got this on a journal? All right, all right, here, this is, this is getting like, I'm, we're going to find out real quick, all right? Uh, if you have a journal or a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a tattoo or have sent a card to someone that had that on the front, please raise your hand right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, we even got one in the audience uh, for the note. Yeah, all right, all right. So uh, this is my wife's uh, journal. She allowed me to uh, bring this up uh, to show you all. Now, I know that in this place, though, there are now uh, two sets of people as we begin to talk about this verse. Now, maybe three. The first set, you're like, yo, I don't even know what this verse is about. This would be interesting. But there's two other sets, okay? Uh, you can determine which one you fit best into. First is uh, kind of, the shall we call them the slightly cynical set, all right? You are so sick and tired of hearing this verse. You feel like it has absolutely been over-commercialized. They're just using this as a way to sell junk to you, putting it on coffee mugs and t-shirts, and you also are just tired of hearing people spout it out for everything, and, and so you're thinking to yourself right now, ooh, T, put them in their place. Blow this verse up. Tell them what it's really about. Show them how they take it out of context. You're so excited for me to blow this verse up right now, all right? Yeah, you're sitting out there and you're like, yeah, that's me. I get it, get it. Now, then there's a whole nother set of y'all, okay, that you're like, Torin, this is my life verse and the life verse that I have chosen for my soon-to-come children and their children behind them. And if you screw with this verse, I promise you that I will find you in the parking lot and shank you. You will not have hope and a future if you mess with this verse for me, all right? Now, I guarantee almost every single person in this room fits into one of those two categories. And here's what I would like to say to you right now, especially those of you that are picking up your four, I know the plans I have for you mugs ready to stone me. Put them down. I think I'm going to make you both happy this morning. Now, we are going to be spending some time actually engaging with this verse, it is a, a pretty amazing promise that God makes to the people of Israel here in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to spend some time, though, before we actually dive into the text to understand its context and what's happening. What I'd like to do is just kind of center ourselves in where we've 
been and where we're going in the book of Jeremiah itself. And what I'd like to do this morning is just start off with a timeline to kind of place ourselves, okay? Uh, we have been in the book of Jeremiah. The, uh, this will be our fourth week, and then next week we're actually going to be finishing this series, and I'm super, super excited uh, about next week as well. But we've kind of been jumping around, and part of the reason that we've done that is because of the fact that even the book of Jeremiah is not perfectly written in chronological order. Uh, it mostly is, but every once in a while, Jeremiah or Baruch, who actually was his, I, I, I said this last time, but I have no idea if it's actually right, Numensis? Is that like the person who writes? Does anybody know? You're all, okay, good, I'm going with Numen, and you guys don't know anyway. Numensis, that's what it's called, the person who writes. Baruch is the one who actually has compiled all of Jeremiah's teachings and, and uh, a number of stories from his life. And so that's why it's mostly chronological, but not always. Sometimes he pops back in the story to make a point or to share something that had happened previously that's now. So here is the timeline, all right? We're just going to kind of uh, uh, get ourselves situated with what's going on. Oh, sorry, no. Yeah, put that back up. This is what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to do the timeline, then uh, we're going to read it, and then I'm going to talk about how we need to apply it. So timeline, thank you. So uh, here's our timeline, all right? So we think that uh, Jeremiah is born to Hilkiah, who is the high priest of Israel, okay? He's the high priest that's uh, serving uh, at the temple. Uh, Jeremiah is born uh, when King Josiah, okay, is, uh, has been reigning for 13 years. So... We know he was born when King Josiah had been reigning for 13 years. Uh, we know that uh, he comes on the scene uh, and begins his ministry, um, we think, when he's around 17. We're not 100% sure. We know that he's young. He could be as early as, like, early teens, could be as old as, like, uh, mid to late 20s. Uh, but we think he's probably around here. For Just for our purposes, we're going to say he was 17. Uh, when he's 35, King Josiah dies, okay? So a good portion of his ministry is under King Josiah. King Josiah is uh, the one good king in Jeremiah's life. The rest of the kings, which we're going to see uh, down here, okay, there's actually uh, a king right here for three months and another king right here for three months. They don't last very long. None of those kings are good kings. Jeremiah, most of his ministry is under other kings, and uh, we have Jeremiah in our first two weeks, uh, Run With the Horses. Uh, he's probably talking about that right around the time that King Josiah uh, dies, maybe a little bit before King Josiah dies or right after he's uh, died, right in that ballpark. Then a couple weeks ago, uh, Austin was talking about uh, the passage, the temple, the temple, the temple. In other words, they had reformed the temple. And so when they went to the temple, they were doing great things, singing, doing the sacrifices the way they're supposed to be doing. But then as soon as they got out of the temple, they were doing all the other things that they had been doing. Their lives weren't actually being transformed. And God says, you can't do that. You can't come to church and act like everything's hunky-dory because you sang a song and took communion, and then go out and live your life however you want to the other six days of the week. That is probably happening right around here, just before the first deportation. Now, you're like, what do you mean deportation? So... The major world superpower at the time had been Assyria, okay? Assyria, though, gets conquered by Babylon. There's a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar who comes into power. They uh, beat uh, Assyria. They become the world superpower. Uh, this guy, Jehoiakim, he actually uh, decides uh, he doesn't want to 
pay taxes to Babylon. And so Babylon's like, yeah, that ain't going to work for us. And so they come and they basically kick Israel's butt. Now, Jeremiah's been prophesying this all along. Not because of taxes, but because God's people have not been living the way that God has asked them to live. They have broken the covenant that they said they were going to make with God. They said, God's going to do this for us, and we will do this for God. And they've broken that covenant, and God says, I'm trying to win you back. And so he allows discipline into their lives. So uh, Jehoiakim's an idiot. Jehoiakim uh, then uh, gets the wrath of Babylon. Babylon comes and beats him up. Okay? So Jerusalem is conquered for the first time, and they deport exiles from Jerusalem and Judea to Babylon. I think we've got a map that I want to show real quick. So uh, as you see right here, this is like Judah, Jerusalem. Look at the green. Don't worry about the purple. Don't worry about the orange. Look at the green. So they come up here, Babylon. This is modern-day Iraq right here, and that's where they all go, 700 miles away. The deportation actually happens three different times. Go back to the timeline for me. The first one happens uh, around uh, 597. Uh, that happens right about here. Then about six years later, there's a second deportation. And then about 11 years after that, there's a third deportation. And that's when Jerusalem is leveled. So the first couple times, they've just been conquered. But then Babylon gets so tired, King Nebuchadnezzar gets so tired of dealing with uh, um, these upstart Jews that he winds up destroying the walls to Jerusalem, takes them all down, and destroys the temple in Jerusalem as well. All right? So what do you do when you are going to exile a people? Who do you exile? They don't take everybody. So there's still a lot of Jews that are living in Jerusalem and Judea. But they do take a number, a good portion of them away, and especially they take the leaders. So the king gets exiled. Both uh, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah get exiled to Babylon, as well as all the religious leaders, priests, and prophets. Anybody that they think is going to be a leader that could help rally Israel or the, the, the inhabitants, the Jews that are still living there, uh, to fight, they take them all away. So you've got a whole bunch of folks that are now living in Babylon, guess who is still in Jerusalem? Jeremiah. You're like, why didn't they take Jeremiah? Jeremiah's this like huge prophet. Look, he wrote two books in the Old Testament. You know why they didn't take Jeremiah? Because the people had stopped listening to Jeremiah for so long that when Babylon comes in, they don't think he's anybody to worry about. They don't care about Jeremiah. Nobody listens to him. He's not seen as a leader. And so Jeremiah actually writes this passage in our text and the one that Austin actually taught on last week, somewhere between the first deportation and the second or third deportation. All right? So it's after the first one has happened. There's already people living in Babylon. And uh, before, though, the last one happens. Now, Jeremiah never gets taken to Babylon. He does get exiled, but he actually gets exiled a couple years later to Egypt. Egypt has actually uh, already been conquered by Babylon, and so he winds up getting sent down there, uh, along with Baruch, who is his uh, writer, his kind of like personal assistant, writes down all of his stuff. And what we're going to be looking at today, though, uh, actually takes place after the first, possibly also the second deportation. There's a number of Jews that are living in Babylon, and they've been there for a couple of years, but they don't anticipate staying very long. In fact, 
context to what we're about to read in chapter 29, if you went back and read chapter 28, you would see that there's a false prophet who's been telling God's people that they're only going to be there for two years. And so don't settle in, don't engage with the culture, don't care about the people, just sit back, cross your arms, and wait, because God's going to get us back home really, really soon. And this is what Jeremiah speaks into, Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's spend some time going through the text together. Start in verse 1. It says, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Drop down with me to verse 4. We'll see what this message is that God has given to Jeremiah to share with these people living in exile in Babylon. This is what Yahweh, remember anytime you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's in all caps, that's God's proper name. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those, uh, says to all those, sorry, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, bombshell, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to Yahweh. Pray to me. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what Yahweh says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The word of the Lord. What I'd like to do is kind of walk back through this chunk that we just looked at to highlight a couple of really important things that are happening here. Uh, we start by returning our attention to verse 4. Verse 4. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What we learn right off the bat is that God says, I'm the one who's done this. Now, he used King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon as the human agent, but God's like, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that carried you into exile. I'm the one who carried you into exile. And that's a bombshell. If, if you're a Jewish person living at this time, you're like, but, but Why? Like, aren't you supposed to be on our side? Aren't you supposed to be our God? Are we not your children? And they're probably thinking to themselves, like, yeah, yeah, we, we know we haven't been perfect. But we ain't that bad. 
we ain't as bad as the Babylon. Like, for real? Like, why would you do that to us using them? And God says, I have done this. Now, we're going to find out why God has done this, but this, this is a bit of a bombshell. Uh, the other thing that's happening here is um, these false prophets have said that the exile is only going to last a couple of years. You got to remember, it's like a 700-mile trip there. It takes about four months to get there, especially if you're in a large caravan. People have lost their connection to the promised land. This is a, a very, very big deal uh, for the Jews, especially those living at this time, to be disconnected from the land. Their lives feel like they have just been broken into pieces, shards of glass. And what they have decided to do is instead of try to put those pieces back together with God's help, they have just basically stuck them in a bag and just left them all broken and are holding on to them until they can get back to the land. The prophets are telling the people what they want to hear, and the people are eating it up. Only going to be a couple years. Look, God told me, don't even sweat it. We're God's kids. Like, he, he's not going to leave us here. Like, he hates the Babylonians. There's no way. And God's like, you are not speaking for me. You are not speaking for me. I'm the one who has done this. Make that very clear. Now we're going to find out that he has not done it to harm them, but to prosper them. But that comes a little bit later. First, they have to recognize that it's actually God, their God, who has done this. And his goal is to help them. God has done the unthinkable. He's taken them from the land. But this discipline was not intended to harm them. This discipline was intended to save them. Verses 5 through 7. That's what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for them, find uh, husbands for your daughters, uh, increase in number, don't decrease, seek the peace uh, and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, what God says is, uh, don't just sit there with your bag of broken shards of glass, with your broken lives, thinking that I'm about to do something soon. He says, I want you to settle in, build houses, plant gardens. You don't plant a garden if you think you're only going to be around for a little while. Why? Because a garden takes, takes a long time. You don't plant the seed and instantly see fruit. No, 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 you've got to wait seasons for that to happen. You don't build a house if you think you're just going camping. You just put up a tent. And God's like, no, 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 you're going to be here for a minute. So I need you to settle in and build houses. Now, they probably didn't want to hear that. They don't want to celebrate a marriage in a foreign land. They don't want to have kids in a foreign land. But God says, no, I need you to engage with this place that you are in. I want you to live your lives with me in this new place. To build a home means that this becomes the place that they're going to stay for a while. And then he drops a bombshell. You thought that the fact that God was the one who carried them in was going to mess with their hearing? Oh, he's just getting started. Then he says, I want you to pray to me for the city I've carried you. Pray for Babylon. Pray for its peace and prosperity. What? You must be crazy. I'm praying for these fools. They, they're the ones who took us. They brought us out. They conquered us. 
God says, I want you to pray for them because their prosperity will be your prosperity. You see, what they wanted to do is basically stay disconnected. We don't know them. We don't like them. We don't want to have nothing to do with them. And God says, no, 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 no. You're going to be connected to them for this time. Now, God's not saying that he wants them to simply take on the Babylonian culture. What God is saying is, I want you to plant yourself that you might be a blessing to them. And so you're going to pray for them, for their prosperity, because their prosperity becomes your prosperity. You are linked together. Then we flip over to verse 11. We finally get to the good stuff. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, when God tells them that they're going to be there for 70 years, we don't know if it's exactly 70 years. You can do some mathematical gymnastics and get it to be exactly 70 years. And it might have been, all right? But probably what God is more interested in saying is that uh, you're going to be here for a lifetime. You're going to be here for a life. 70 years is was kind of the typical lifespan of a person. And so by saying 70 years, that's kind of what he's saying to them. Uh, don't think that in your lifetime, something is going to change. You're going to be here for your lifetime. So settle in. You don't need to be in the land for you to know me and know my blessing. And after he tells them to settle in, then God gives them this beautiful promise, right? The one that you've got in your journal, one that you might have tattooed, all right? The one that you got on that mug, that t-shirt, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And that had to sound a little strange, quite honestly, to the, Babel, or to the uh, Jews that are living in Babylon at the time. You're telling me that I'm here the rest of my life, but you're also telling me that there's going to be a future. And I think that that was intended twofold. That was intended to those who would never leave Babylon because they would die there. But it was also, uh, in, and it was intended to say to them, I have something for you to do now. Not just when everything's good, when everything's uh, normal as you think it ought to be. I have something for you to do now. I have plans for you. And they're plans to prosper you. And I think it was also intended to be a promise for the future. Not just what God wants to do with me, but what he's going to do with me, how that's going to then get passed down to generations that come behind me. For I know the plans I have for you. God is disciplining them. But that does not mean that they have foiled his plans. Like, man, you blew it. You ever feel like that? Man, I just made too many mistakes, too much. I, this thing again made this, and you're like, I got, he's got to be done. Like, he's got to be done with me. And God's like, no, 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 no. You have blown it. You are experiencing discipline. But my discipline is not punitive. My discipline is redemptive. That's the difference between me as a dad and God as a dad. When God disciplines, it's always for my benefit. It's always redemptive. I way too often discipline my kids just because I'm mad at them. And they did this and it frustrated me. And so now I'm going to take that away. So it frustrates them. That's not being a good dad. It's punitive. What God wants to do is discipline, which is restorative, corrective, redemptive. That's why God says, I got plans for you still. And they're good plans got work for you to do, even in Babylon, verse 13 through 14. 
start in 12. He says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God says, if you will seek me, you will find me. It's a good promise, isn't it? If you will seek me with all your heart, man, if you really care, if you really want to know how real I am, how good I am, what I'm actually about, if you really will do the work, if you will put yourself out there, I promise I won't leave you hanging. He says, if you will pray to me, I will listen. So many of these promises get reiterated again in the New Testament where Jesus says we get to come boldly into the throne room of grace. We don't understand that concept, throne room, because, like, we don't have kings. Nobody entered the throne room without permission. Nobody entered the throne room in ancient kingdoms uh, without pre-approval. Nobody just got to decide who was going to do it. Only a very select few would ever be allowed into the king's presence, and certainly not when he's chilling his throne. You ain't just walking up on a king. And yet what Jesus says is that we, as his kids, get to come boldly into the throne room. Just walk right in. And, 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 and what is, it's a throne room of what? Grace. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. If you pray, I will listen. Man, what beautiful, beautiful promises. So here's what I'd like to do with our remaining time. I'd just like to now say, all right, how do we apply this? Because that's a big question, right? Are all the t-shirts doing it wrong? The coffee mug wrong, right? Was that really meant for you? Wasn't this taken out of context whenever we quote this verse, for I know the plans I have for you? Like, yeah, he's talking to the, to the Jews in Israel. Well, I want to start by talking about what uh, we cannot apply. Is that fair? We can't apply the specifics of this passage to our nation. Modern America is not ancient Israel. Okay? This is important that we understand this. Please do not quote Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13 at your local school board meeting or at the city commissioner's meeting or the county commissioner's meeting, looking at you, Ottawa. That is a misapplication of God's word. Israel is not modern-day America. We cannot then say, if America will humble itself and come back to God, America isn't God's the way that ancient Israel was. There is application, and that is to us, the church. You see, that promise was given to God's people, and we, in Christ, are God's people. Christ actually receives all the promises of the Old Testament, and we, in Christ, now get the blessings and experience of those promises ourselves. That is an important distinction that we have to understand. Does not mean that I think God hates America. Heck no. He loves every country in the world. He is 
in charge of and over every country. But America is not his children, quote unquote. The church is. We are. We get these promises. So if we refers to the church, to the followers of Jesus, fantastic. But please don't ever get it twisted with our country. Now, we can apply it to ourselves. And so I want to give us just a couple of thoughts on how we go about that. What it actually means to be in exile and how we engage with that word. And something that I think God wanted Israel to understand about the land and specifically some of those promises. So let's start there, okay? It was never ultimately to be about a relationship with a place, but a relationship with a person. I think this is a little harder for us as Americans because we're not tied to uh, the land quite in the same way that Israel was tied to the land because of the promises of it, all right? But from the very beginning, I don't believe that God ever intended that Israel would only experience God in the land of promise. God wanted to be with them before they entered it and after they entered it. And God promises them here in this passage that he's going to be with them when they're not in the land anymore, but actually in Babylon. Almost the anti-Israel. And here he is saying to his people, I've brought you out of Israel into Babylon in exile, but I'm still here. Home is less supposed to be about the place, but rather the person. God always intended that he was going to bring his presence, his unique, powerful presence, and in his grace and goodness, give it to his chosen people in that promised land, but it was never supposed to stay there. It was supposed to flow in and not sit like a swamp, but rather flow out like living waters that were supposed to water the rest of the world. That was always the point. Did you know that the promised land is like less than one-tenth of one percent of all of the landmass on earth? You think God was excited to give his children one-tenth of one percent? No, he was always intending that the whole world would be ours. That's why Jesus actually mentions in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek are going to inherit the earth. He doesn't say the meek are going to inherit the promised land. He created it, the whole thing, for us. He desires that we would understand that, know that, he doesn't want them to get stuck thinking that the only place that they can truly experience God is when they're back in the promised land. He wants to meet them there. Maybe you're feeling a little bit like you've been exiled lately. So let's talk a little bit about exile and what, what it means specifically, but then also how we use it, and I think in a fair way. The word exile, or simply to be exiled, is to be forcibly removed from your country. That is the technical definition, to be forcibly removed from your country or home. Now, the way that we generally and often use the word today, some of you may have actually experienced that. Some of you that are sitting in this church right now, the technical definition of being forcibly removed from your country or home. All of us, though, I think, uh, if you see the second half, generally a feeling of forced removal from that which you know and feels safe. Uh, and we all experience exile, don't we? Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Run With the Horses, talks a little bit about this. He's like, uh, we all are exiled from the womb when we're born. That place of safety, of warmth, of closeness. And then we're born, and we're born into a cold and much less safe environment. And then when we hit about five years old or so, 
uh, we're exiled from home to this place called school for eight hours a day. And then at some point in life, we get exiled from our first home out into a new home, whether that be at a college or uh, just leaving your parents' house and having to start kind of learning how to do things on our own. There's all kinds of ways that we experience exile. When we're younger and our parents move and we have no say in the matter and you have to leave home and friends and community and you get exiled to a new place. For some of you, you've experienced exile with work. Someone deemed that you were no longer necessary, budgets got cut, you were let go and you feel a sense of exile that this thing that was my place, community, a sense of safety has now been taken away. For some of you, it's been relational exile. Maybe you were married, but through divorce or death, you all of a sudden find yourself in a new place and it doesn't feel normal and it doesn't feel safe. Exile is something that every single one of us experience. Israel certainly was experiencing at this time, the literal removal from their homeland to a place that was new. And God wanted them to know that he would meet them in that place of exile. Didn't have to get it all figured out. Didn't have to get back to everything being right. God wanted to meet them in their place of exile. New Testament actually makes it clear that we, as followers of Jesus, are aliens and strangers. Second uh, Peter 2.11 actually says that. I don't like to, well, I'm always feel a little bit weird about having a little of this conversation. Um, but I think it's true. I think it's just harder to follow Jesus and truly believe that his word is authoritative and then also place myself under that authority here in America. Didn't feel as difficult to do that 20, 30 years ago. I feel it more today. It's a sense of exile. Now, uh, we still live in America. It's not like we've been taken and moved someplace else, but there is a sense of exile where it's just, it's, it's, it's different, it's harder. Do you know what God expects of me? God expects me to settle in. God expects me to build a house and start a family and plant a garden to not disengage from the place that he has placed me, but rather to engage with it. And God has asked me to pray, pray for the city that I love, for the country that I'm proud to be a part of, in spite of all of its failures. I pray for that country. Why? Because the country's prosperity is my prosperity. It doesn't mean that my citizenship is truly found in America. My citizenship is found in heaven. There is a different kingdom that I am loyal to. But it does not mean that I'm supposed to disengage from where God has placed me. Why? Because I was put here to be a blessing. That's what God wanted for Israel. That's what God wants for us. That's what we're supposed to be. One of our values here is would she weep? It's a funny question to ask. But we ask that question, would our city mourn if TLC didn't exist? We want to be able to answer in the affirmative. Why? Because we believe we're supposed to love and serve our city so well that if we weren't here, she would miss us. Be a blessing. This is what God tells Israel to do. And what I love about it is that that comes with a promise. And the promise is, in a very wonderful, beautiful, and fair application of it, is that we as God's people 
should expect to experience that God has plans for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans for hope and a future. So what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to apply these promises liberally to our lives. I want you to think of your life as a fresh baked loaf of bread that just came out of the oven. And we're going to take a knife and cut a nice big old big fat inch and a half thick chunk slice of bread and the steam still coming off of it. And now we're going to take this promise and pretend it's butter. And we're going to take a huge chunk of butter, way more than you ought to. Don't tell your cardiologist that you did this. And I want you to slather it all over that piece of bread and enjoy it. That's what we're supposed to do with this promise to our life. His promises, excuse me, he promises that if we start pursuing power and comfort and stop pursuing holiness and justice, he will discipline us. You can bank on it. Take a minute, I just want you to sit in that promise because that's a real promise, friends. His discipline is not punitive, it is restorative, redemptive. His discipline is to save us. But the second that we, like those folks that Jeremiah is writing to, begin to pursue power and comfort rather than justice and holiness, God will discipline us. That's the first thing that we need to take from this passage. And apply that liberally to your life. The second thing, he promises that if we seek him with our whole heart, he will be found. If we pray to him, he will hear us. Bank on that. If you really want to find Jesus, if you really want to know him, if you really want to follow him and you call out, I promise you he will be found. He will be fine. If you pray to him, he will listen. That is a promise that you can bank on. Take a second and sit in that. That's a wonderful promise. The last promise to slather all over your life is that he promises that his blessing and his discipline is always for our benefit. His long-term plan is to prosper his people. You can bank on it. That is God's heart. I used to know a lot of this stuff, like theoretically, like in my head. Um, I knew that God was a good father and da-da-da-da and that he probably like wanted me to do well or, you know, like prosper. Now I'm not saying like in the American version, you know, like I get a Lamborghini Countach and a sweet house, you know. I mean, that's cool. God, if you want to do that, I'm down, but. I knew that theoretically, but when I had kids of my own, I began to know it from a heart level. I want to see my kids flourish. I've got plans that I'd love to see them live into. I want to do what's best for them. I don't want to punish them with punitive measures. I want to discipline them to restore, redeem, save them. I, more than anything else, want to see them fully adjusted, mature as adults. It's my heart's desire. It's everything that I long for. 
And when I finally had kids, I started to understand how God is Father. So much better than me. I screw it up all the time. Please don't ask my kids. <laughs> I like that you have a nice opinion of me right now, okay? So just don't talk. But God as Father desires even better than I ever could for my own kids. His plan is something that he put into place before you were even born, and you can't screw it up. He will redeem whatever past mistakes, whatever sin you're living in right now, he can redeem that. If you'll call on him, if you'll pray to him, he wants to listen. And he will take those plans and he will begin to reveal them to you and they will always be plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's what he wants. Father, we want to be people who are willing to give you permission. Permission to be God. Permission to tell us what's right and wrong. I'll admit, God, it's hard. I don't always love everything that you say. I'm learning to. Don't always do it perfectly. That's for doggone sure. But God, I know that your way is best. I see it every single time that I submit to you. I also see it every single time that I try to figure out um, on my own and try to make myself God rather than you. That, that never goes well for me. Thank you for the lessons that we learn from the book of Jeremiah. Thank you that you are God who doesn't give up, that your discipline is restorative, that you are with us even in the midst of exile and you still have plans for us and those plans are for our benefit to bless us, to see us prosper, to give us hope in a future. Father, let us be a people who are willing to hold on to those promises, to step in to that truth. No matter what we're going through today, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.